This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. If you're concerned about the growing disparities of wealth and income in the United States, as well as the decline in unionization and the fact that our economy seems dominated by corporations committed to downsizing, outsourcing, offshoring, and financial manipulation— Our guest, New York Times correspondent David Gellis, says that to a remarkable degree, these trends can be traced to the career of one man. Jack Welch was the chief executive of the General Electric Corporation for the last two decades of the 20th century. In a new book, Gellis says Welch's ruthless cost-cutting and single-minded focus on quarterly earnings transformed GE and made him a celebrity CEO— a darling of Wall Street whose methods were widely praised and copied by other corporate managers. But Gellis argues that the spread of Welch's management principles was bad for workers, bad for the economy, and ultimately bad for GE and the companies that followed his lead. David Gellis is a correspondent on the Climate Desk at the New York Times, covering the intersection of public policy and the private sector. Before that, he was a reporter and columnist for the business section for eight years. Before joining the Times in 2013, he was a reporter for the Financial Times. His new book is The Man Who Broke Capitalism, How Jack Welch Gutted the Heartland and Crushed the Soul of Corporate America, and How to Undo His Legacy. Well, David Gellis, welcome to Fresh Air. You know, Jack Welch took over General Electric in 1981, and I remember it as a company that sold toasters and appliances and dishwashers and refrigerators. This was a company founded by Thomas Edison almost 100 years before. Give us a sense of GE's role in the American economy and and American life back then. As I dug into the history of GE, I found it hard to overstate not only the impact that GE still had in 1981 when Jack took over, but really its role in the history of American industry for the better part of this century before that. This was the company that brought us electric light bulbs, power plants, x-ray machines. This was the company that introduced everyday products like the toaster oven. They were behind the mass marketing of radio sets and televisions, dishwashers. The list just went on and on. And that was just on the consumer side. When you looked at their influence on industry and government beyond what we might find in our kitchens, they were no less influential there as well. It was GE that helped put men on the moon on the Apollo missions. You go back and look at those pictures and there are lines and lines of GE engineers working side by side with NASA engineers. And right up to the present day, the size of that company became, you know, at one point, I think representing something close to 1% of the American GDP. And there was a phrase, you know, as GE goes, so goes the American economy. Right. It had a, it had a very strong record of research and development and innovation. Um, How did it treat its employees? Like many companies in the post-war era, GE was a relatively benevolent employer. Many people call it the golden age of capitalism. These roughly 30 years after World War II, which saw many of our biggest companies grow to unprecedented size and in the process make a whole bunch of money and start sharing it in ways that would seem very unfamiliar today. Big companies back then, and GE is a perfect example of this, 
were proud of the way that they distributed their profits widely with employees, with their supply chains, and even with the government. It was a 1953 annual report by GE that I cite in the book where they brag about how much they're paying in salaries to their workers and how much they're paying in taxes to the government. I don't need to tell you that that's a whole lot different than the way many companies operate today. Now, Jack Welch would transform the company. Let's talk a bit about him. Tell us about his background. What kind of kid was he? What was his temperament? From an early age, and Jack acknowledged this himself in his autobiography, he was impulsive, somewhat aggressive, restless, ambitious, impatient. Uh, He was raised primarily by his mother, who was a devout Catholic. One amazing anecdote I found was that she taught him to gamble at an early age, making him wager his own money to learn sort of in a visceral sense what it meant to win and lose. But he was also, you know, deeply involved in the faith. He was an altar boy. Uh, There were flashes of a a temper from an early age. There's an anecdote uh, that I think he repeats in his autobiography where he talks about caddying at a local golf course. And the man he was caddying for asked him to go fetch a ball that had gone in the water. And instead he throws the man's golf clubs in the water and storms off the course. (laughs) So you see flashes of a temper. And that continues right on into his early days at GE when as a young associate, his first year at the company, he decides to quit because he learns that his colleagues got the same raise that he did, and he thought he was doing better. So he said he would quit the company, and it was only after his superior promised to give him an even bigger raise that he agreed to stay. Was not a rich kid growing up, right? He was not. His family was relatively poor. His father was a conductor, a unionized conductor on a local commuter railroad in the Boston area. And he grew up with what he said, quote, his nose pressed up against the glass. He he seemed to feel slighted from an early age. And that clearly drove his behavior to the extreme in the years that followed. So he joins General Electric. Oh, we should note that he got a, a, a degree from UMass Amherst and then got a degree in chemical engineering from the University of Illinois at Champaign. Um, he gets a job at GE. He moves up uh, into the, in the plastics division, starts moving up the management ladder. What was his record there? What was his style? He was pushing his subordinates hard from the very get-go. Early in his career, he was overseeing the development of a new type of plastic uh, in a Massachusetts plant. And he forced his team to go ever faster, ever harder, encouraged them to experiment with a, a highly volatile process that hadn't been fully tested. And there was an explosion. A large part of this factory blows up. Miraculously, no one is hurt, no one is injured. And the next day, he is called down to headquarters in Fairfield, Connecticut. And rather than being reprimanded, however, the superiors at the time sort of let him get away with it. And he took that as evidence that he could continue to, I think, push the envelope, push the limits, and get by with a a sense of impunity 
in a way. Uh, ultimately, though, he had real success. He helped oversee the development and introduction of uh, new plastics that became very profitable. He kept moving up the ladder inside GE and was ultimately uh, identified as a potential successor to the CEO at the time, Reg Jones, and asked to move to Connecticut and join essentially the succession race to replace Reg, which of course he ultimately won. Um, It's one thing to have policies that squeeze your employees and make them work harder, try to make them get more productivity. Um, Was he personally abrasive also? Was he a tough guy to deal with? People recount their experiences with Jack Welch with a, a shudder oftentimes. The face goes white at times. People said he was like a herd of elephants coming on was one quote I found. He was argumentative. He pushed people to defend their ideas even if he agreed with them. He uh, had a penchant for foul language. Uh, he employed metaphors that would frankly be unacceptable in today's corporate landscape. He, he had views that would not be traditionally seen as politically correct today. I won't necessarily go into the details, but he was a alpha male, aggressive, materialistic, argumentative manager. And that set the mold for a type of corporate management that still carries weight today. And he, more than just about anyone else, was the progenitor of this style of CEO. So when Jack took command of GE, I mean, you write about the ways in which he changed its focus. Um, One of them had to do with its attitude towards its employees. Um, How did that change? Jack came to the job with a conviction that GE simply employed too many people. Now again, the economy was changing. There was competition from overseas. Things were going to get more competitive. GE was going to have to operate in a different way. But as with almost everything he did, Welch reacted in the extreme. And in the first few years of taking over GE, he fired more than 100,000 people in a series of mass layoffs and factory closures that began a process of destabilizing the American working class. Up until this point, people who had a job at a company like GE or IBM basically figured that they had a job for life. But he explicitly said that this notion was going to be a thing of the past under his watch. And so all of a sudden, we have this much more transactional relationship between a worker and an employer that, of course, we're still living with today. And in addition to these mass layoffs and factory closures, he turned to things like outsourcing and offshoring, looking for contractors who could do the work of GE security guards and janitors rather than keeping those people on staff. And when those jobs moved to contractors, well... Suddenly, those men and women were not at a blue-chip Fortune 100 company like GE with a history of great benefits, but they were at a contractor that was a service provider for those companies and looking to minimize costs. And on the offshoring front, Welch sent many of those factory jobs that he closed around the country 
overseas. They still need to make the products, but they wanted to make them much, much more cheaply. And so we see the first great wave of labor, American manufacturing labor, going abroad and thus begins the real beginning of serious outsourcing that would, of course, decimate America's manufacturing base. Now, of course, all of these things cut costs and therefore can improve profits, which is one way of a corporate leader assessing his responsibilities, and that was a primary focus of his. This did get some attention. There was a 60-minute segment and a 1984 Fortune magazine piece about him being the toughest boss of America, and somebody, I guess Newsweek, called him Neutron Jack because the neutron bomb, uh, which was developed around the time, would kill people but not destroy buildings. You know, It takes the people away and leaves everything else standing. This was tough stuff. Did Jack Welch care? Was he troubled by any of this coverage? He hated the Neutron Jack name, even though he could never shake it. Even when he died in 2020, President Trump gave him a tweet. He said, there was no corporate leader like Neutron Jack. So that label stuck with him for the duration of his life. What was so remarkable, though, is that Despite the negative press he got in those early years, he was able to continue his work because the GE board and ultimately Wall Street and ultimately the rest of corporate America saw that what he was doing was, for better or worse, working in the short term. These strategies he was employing were indeed ticking up short-term profits. All of a sudden, other CEOs saw that, hey, yes, if we rapidly wind down the cost of our labor, we could potentially see a meaningful increase in earnings per share for the next quarter. And Wall Street sure liked that. And so there was this incentive system that encouraged other CEOs to start following his lead. And what's so remarkable is that even after these first years of pretty withering press, He's able to survive and ultimately become revered as the absolute model CEO to the point that Fortune magazine at the end of his career calls him the manager of the century. Manager of the century. Wow. You know, a, a, apart from closing plants that he deemed too expensive or, or moving operations overseas, he had an idea that even with the workforce that you have, you should regularly rank them and cull the bottom, what, 10 percent? Right? He had a euphemistic name for this practice. He called it the vitality curve. But it was known internally and more broadly in the public as stack ranking, or even more sharply, rank and yank. And the idea is this managers, he said, needed to rank their employees. 20% get an A grade, 70% get a B grade. And 10% get a C grade. And if you're in that 10%, you're out of the company. He did that for 20 years inside GE, which led to thousands and thousands of layoffs. And it became, because he was so influential, dogma in corporate America. When Steve Ballmer took over Microsoft, he implemented stack ranking, and it led to great turmoil in the ranks uh, of Microsoft. And even more recently, Adam Newman the founder of WeWork, was using stack ranking as WeWork was growing so quickly. Even though that company had billions and billions of dollars in funding, he saw the need to fire 10% of its workers every single year because Jack did it. 
So one thing that you say that he did that dramatically transformed the, the company was downsizing, cost-cutting. Another thing you say is deal-making. Now, now, that can mean a lot of things, right? I mean, every company makes deals for, with suppliers, for real estate when they need to build something. You're talking about a different kind of deal-making. What are you referring to? It's true that just about every company makes deals, but no company made as many deals as quickly as General Electric under Jack Welch. During his time as CEO, the company struck more than 1,000 mergers. And at the same time, they shed some 300 or 400 businesses. No company had ever done so many transactions so quickly. And the effects were manifold. One of the main ways in which it changed GE was simply to make it a bigger company. And that, again, was one of his stated intents. And he understood very quickly, very early on, that he wasn't going to be able to grow his way to GE being the biggest company on earth. He was going to have to buy his way there. As he did this, though, it changed the culture in profound ways. When you buy a company and try to merge its corporate culture, there are all sorts of unintended consequences, and it's not always easy necessarily. And oftentimes, you're actually buying things that you may not fully understand. And that was the case when he bought Kidder Peabody, an investment bank on Wall Street that was, frankly, a den of thieves. Uh, It was the locus of the biggest insider trading scandal in Wall Street history at the time. And it was only after GE took ownership of it that all of this came spilling out into the open. And Welch realized he sort of had bought himself a mess. But at the end of the day, it didn't really matter because what Welch was focused on was using deal-making to make GE not only bigger, but as he said, number one or number two in every industry. You, you know, you write that when he bought NBC, it made him a media mogul um, and gave him a certain level of visibility and access to celebrities. I mean, what what was distinctive about his approach to owning a broadcast network? I mean, did he meddle with content? He reveled in the limelight. There's no doubt about that. Under his watch, NBC acquired the rights to the Olympics. And the story goes that he was... Uh, not entirely persuaded of the business merits of the acquisition, but he understood that it would be a good opportunity to wine and dine other executives and celebrities at the Olympics, and so he went ahead with it. Beyond that, though, Welch understood the power of owning media properties long before I think many other media moguls truly did. Now, whether he meddled with coverage in in an ongoing basis, uh, I don't know that we can make that claim. But there are instances when, indeed, some very senior media executives who were working for him at the time have shared anecdotes about him actually doing just that. There were reports that on election night in 2000, Welch is in the decision room uh, at NBC and pressures the team to call the election for George W. Bush. Now, I think they resisted that temptation. Uh, There are disputes about whether or not that happened, but the implication was clear. Welch understood the power of the media and at least at times tried to use his influence to shape events to his liking. 
the remarkable quote here, I mean, I don't know how reliable this is, is him saying in in the newsroom on that election night of that razor-thin Bush versus Gore race, how much do I have to pay you a-holes to call this thing for Bush? Pretty stunning. Indeed. We're going to take another break here. Let me reintroduce you. We're speaking with David Gellis. He is a correspondent for The New York Times. His new book about the late Jack Welch, who was CEO of General Electric for 20 years, is The Man Who Broke Capitalism. He'll be back to talk more after this short break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air. We're speaking with New York Times correspondent David Gellis. He's written a new book about the career and legacy of the late Jack Welch, the widely celebrated CEO of General Electric for the last two decades of the 20th century. Gellis argues that Welch's doctrine of ruthless cost-cutting and single-minded focus on corporate earnings harmed workers, ruined GE, and warped much of the American economy. Gellis' book is The Man Who Broke Capitalism. So when Jack Welch took over the GE Corporation uh, in 1981 and ran it for 20 years, you say he, he forced a lot of downsizing, a lot of layoffs, a lot of outsourcing. Um, and he went on an acquisition spree buying other companies, which changed the, na- the nature of General Electric and uh, gave it control of a lot of companies that it may not have known quite what it was doing with. The third thing you talk about is something called finan- financialization. Um, explain what you mean by this. Jack understood that in the early 1980s, the business world was changing. And indeed, Wall Street and the finance industry was poised to grow in truly exponential ways. And that was the result of changes in technology that were enabling different kinds of market making. And it was also the result of a great deal of financial innovation at uh, banks and leveraged buyout firms, etc. And so even before he took over, he had identified what was known as GE Capital, this financial center inside the company, as an area that he believed could be really the future of the company. And over the course of his 20 years in charge, he did just that. Many of his acquisitions, well beyond Kidder Peabody, served to enlarge GE Capital. But in the process, they took GE into all manner of ultimately somewhat risky financial products. GE all of a sudden was transacting in large corporate real estate deals. They were managing white label credit cards for other companies. They became the owners of enormous fleets of leased vehicles and airplanes. They had satellites that they leased. And so all of a sudden, again, they realize, Jack realizes, that finance, this large umbrella term for a whole bucket of businesses that are quite far from the factory floor, hold potentially the keys to making GE, as he desires, the most valuable company on earth. Ultimately, his successor continues this process, and it leads GE to get into things like subprime mortgages, short-term lending. And all of these businesses become dangerously exposed when the financial crisis finally hits. In addition, Jack used financialization to use GE Capital to essentially smooth out the company's earnings. So every 90 days when the company reported its financial results to Wall Street, in the weeks before it had to report, it was able to massage its earnings 
and do a few transactions here, a few transactions there, sell a few assets, buy a few assets if it needed to, make a few write-offs, to come in and hit its earnings targets just about where it had promised Wall Street it would be. And that led to this unprecedented run of almost 80 quarters in a row when GE was able to hit its numbers, something no other company has ever come close to. What's interesting about this is that, you know, the focus on quarterly earnings reports was kind of a feature of corporate leadership in these days, that you had to convince Wall Street that you were doing well. That was the benchmark, you know, once every three months. And if you did that well, your stock price rose. And Jack Welch did that really successfully. It struck me that if they were able to hit their targets year after year after year after year, and you're talking about, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in quarterly earnings, it must have looked a little suspicious. I mean, could anything be that, I don't know, could anyone be that successful? I mean, it seems like it, it, it must have been fudged just on its face. We have to remember that before 2001, 2002, it was a very different era on Wall Street. This was before the Sarbanes-Oxley Act implemented a great deal of more stringent financial disclosures on public companies. This was before some of the major corporate scandals like Enron and Tyco and WorldCom. And it was frankly an era where men like Jack Welch could get away with simply not sharing as much as we might expect big companies to reveal about their quarterly results today. And that's just what he did. It was largely a quote-unquote black box. No one really knew exactly all the transactions that were happening inside GE Capital. And that was the intent. Now, some people definitely were suspicious. And indeed, not long after Welch retired, Bill Gross, one of the most influential investors, the co-founder of PIMCO, the big bond manager, he writes this scathing rebuke of GE where he says the company's honesty remains in doubt and goes on to say, GE has been shrouded in mystery for a number of years. Institutional investors have wondered why a company continue to produce 15% earnings growth year after year, quarter after quarter. And he was finally saying the thing that no one had been daring enough to say when Welch was in power, which was that, just as you said, Dave, something looks off here. And sure enough, it was. Seven years after this, in 2009, GE finally settled sweeping accounting charges with the SEC, acknowledging that it had misstated earnings for years. So in the 20 years that Jack Welch was the head of the company, if you know, it had these consistently rising earnings, um, it was acquiring companies everywhere and therefore increasing its size and influence. What did all this mean in the end for the company's stock price and for Jack Welch's own reputation and celebrity? Welch wanted to make GE the biggest company on earth, and he succeeded. By the early 90s, General Electric had eclipsed, I believe, Exxon at the time to become the most valuable company on the stock market. And it would remain so, more or less uninterrupted for the duration of his career. And the 90s were really a, sort of the golden years for Welch. Now, 
many of the processes that we've just talked about, the downsizing, the offshoring, the outsourcing, the financialization, the deal-making, that was all continuing apace. But it was also true that in the short term, at least, it was working. GE stock continued to tick up, and Welch was able to shake off that neutron jack reputation and really emerge as the first celebrity CEO. He was out there mingling with movie stars. His face was on the cover of magazines all the time. And he emerged as sort of this imperial executive and helped define what I think is still with us today in the form of a certain amount of CEO worship. We, we sort of adore our bosses in this sort of unbelievable way, but it was hard not to. You know, here he was, he had turned GE into the most valuable company on earth. He was making, you know, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars himself. And everything seemed to be going pretty swimmingly. Uh, GE's stock did fall a bit in his final year in office, but it was still near its all-time highs at the point. And again, Fortune magazine at his retirement calls him the manager of the century. And he basically goes out on top. Yeah. I'm sure he was widely admired by many, but I'm sure among working people, he was not so popular. Right? Or, or am I wrong about that? During his time at GE, many GE workers benefited. You know, those men and women at the company who were invested in GE stock, they got to see their fortunes rise uh, along with Welch's and the company's. But again, It depends on the time horizon we're looking at. If we're looking at just the years he was running the company and just what he did and who benefited at that point, you can make a case that, sure, he was good for at least the GE workers who didn't get fired under Rankin-Yank or under his downsizing or offshoring or outsourcing. But fast forward and look at what happens to GE's pensioners. Look what happens to the men and women holding GE stock as it plummets in the years following his departure, because when he leaves, all of these flaws are fundamentally exposed, and Wall Street starts seeing through the charade. So his reputation among workers was a complex one. I think for some GE workers, they enjoyed the benefits. But even in the 90s, when Jack was riding high, it was becoming commonly understood among organized labor, among union leaders, that Jack had led a charge in the early 80s that was resonating with them still and has ultimately helped erode union membership in this country to record low levels today. Let me reintroduce you again. We're going to take a break here. We're speaking with David Gellis. He's a correspondent for the New York Times. His new book about the late Jack Welch is called The Man Who Broke Capitalism. We'll continue our conversation after a quick break. This is Fresh Air. The following message comes from NPR sponsor Chevrolet, introducing the all-electric 2022 Bolt EUV. Vehicle Chief Engineer Jeremy Short shares how the growing interest in electric vehicles inspired him to make the Bolt EUV a good fit for more customers. Suddenly, people I never thought of will call me up and ask me, so what do you think about electric vehicles? Do you think electric vehicles is right for me? So one of our goals with the Chevy Bolt EUV was to give a mainstream consumer an affordable EV option without it being a compromise to their daily driving routine. To learn more, visit Chevy.com for details. 
This is Fresh Air, and we're speaking with David Gellis. He is a correspondent for The New York Times. His new book is about the career and legacy of the late Jack Welch, the widely celebrated CEO of General Electric for the last two decades of the 20th century. How far did GE fall from the heights that Jack Welch had taken it to? From being the most valuable company on earth, GE fell to the point of essential irrelevance in the American economy. In 2018, with all of Welch's bad decisions catching up with the company, GE was removed from the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the bluest of blue chip indexes and a real bellwether of the American economy. GE had been one of the very first companies included in the index, and it was ultimately the last of that original group to be removed. But it's departure from the Dow was this real symbolic moment that ultimately set the stage for uh, a news that happened just last year, which was the fact that GE is finally getting broken up once and for all. What does that mean, getting broken up once and for all? The, The company won't exist? Late last year, in 2021, GE's current chief executive announced that the company would separate itself into three smaller standalone companies. One focused on jet engines, one focused on medical devices, and one focused on power equipment. This is all that's left of Jack Welch's legacy. Far from being the most valuable company on earth and a conglomerate that spanned the world and all these different industries, GE is now going to be essentially chopped up into three different discrete pieces, and that's the end of the story. You know, there's also the matter of Jack Welch's lifestyle. And around the time of his retirement, uh, he had a nasty divorce, which led to a court case which revealed some details about his severance arrangement with General Electric. You want to explain this? This is one more way in which what Jack Welch did at GE informed the world we live in today. Jack arranged his compensation package in retirement to be such that he was essentially entitled to live as he had as CEO in perpetuity. In practice, that meant that because as CEO, he flew on private jets and enjoyed uh, unlimited tabs at the finest restaurants. So in retirement, would the company pick up those expenses. And in this divorce, it came out that, in fact, GE and ultimately GE shareholders were paying for lavish meals at the finest restaurants, were paying for the flowers in his apartment overlooking Central Park, were paying for his floor seats at Knicks games and his tickets to the Metropolitan Opera. When this came out, there was an outrage He ultimately promised to return some of that money and not accept as much in retirement. But he was ultimately unbowed, and he wrote an article defending himself where he essentially said, I was worth every penny. But it didn't end there because other CEOs began getting these lavish packages in retirement. And in the same way that Welch became one of the first billionaire managers, he wasn't an inventor or an entrepreneur, he was a people manager who ultimately became a billionaire. Other CEOs now continue to be compensated at astronomical rates that simply dwarf what the average American makes in their lifetime. 
you know, to, to just widen the lens here and ask a big, big question. I mean, the name of your book is The Man Who Broke Capitalism. You know, and critics would say we live in a country now where there are these, these fantastic contrasts of wealth and poverty and terrible inequality in the distribution of wealth and income and a tax system which essentially supports that and campaign finance practices which allow the rich to have such enormous influence. Um, I don't know. Can, can capitalism be fixed? That makes me ask the question, can our country be fixed? And I really think these questions are two sides of the same coin. Our economic system is at the root and is all mixed up in so many of the other social and political debates that we're experiencing right now uh, as a nation. My hope is that by really understanding the truth that there is a different way to do business and that in fact a lot of the things that made this country so prosperous in the second half of the 20th century were working just fine until Jack Welch came along can give us a roadmap for creating an economic system that rewards not only executives and the richest shareholders, but truly starts distributing the wealth created by our corporations deeply and broadly across every part of this country. Because I think if that happened, if we were able to funnel some of these corporate profits back into communities that have been long forgotten for years and decades now, that would at least be one small step towards repairing some of the fabric of this country. And that would be a beautiful thing in my mind. Well, David Gellis, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. David Gellis is a correspondent for The New York Times. His new book about the late Jack Welch, who was CEO of General Electric for 20 years, is The Man Who Broke Capitalism. Coming up, David Biancooley reviews the new Netflix special about the late Norm MacDonald. This is Fresh Air. On Monday, Netflix presented the premiere of a new comedy show called Norm MacDonald, Nothing Special. It was filmed by the comedian in his apartment complex with no audience the night before he entered the hospital for a stem cell transplant in June 2020. He'd been in remission from cancer since 2013, but it had recurred after seven years. Only his immediate family and management team ever knew he was ill. After his death in September 2021 of complications from cancer, his producing partner, Laurie Joe Hookstra, produced this special. Most of it is Norm MacDonald running through his comedy set in one unbroken take. The rest is a small group of friends, including David Letterman and Conan O'Brien, sitting around talking about their late friend after screening the special. Our TV critic David Biancooley has this review. When I heard about the circumstances surrounding Netflix's Norm MacDonald Nothing Special, I immediately thought about unforgettable TV appearances I had seen by people who were aware that their deaths might be imminent. Mythologist Joseph Campbell, talking to Bill Moyers, once advised people to follow their bliss. British TV writer Dennis Potter told people to see the present tense. And singer-songwriter Warren Zevon, appearing on David Letterman's talk show shortly before his death, encouraged people to enjoy every sandwich. So I wondered, 
what sort of advice and wisdom would Norm MacDonald bring to what might be, and in fact was, his final comedy routine? As it turns out, not much. But that's by no means a complaint. We get one last dose of Norm, and he does touch on a variety of topics, from politics and living wills to masturbation and doctors. Yet he never addresses his condition or situation directly. The special was shot with McDonald seated at the kitchen counter in the apartment of his neighbor and longtime production partner, Lori Jo Hookstra. Two cameras were used, both capturing the comedian in close-up, one head-on, one from the side. And without notes or an audience, he just talks, delivering the in-progress version of the next Netflix stand-up special he was working on. The on-screen introduction to the special explains that Norm MacDonald had the idea to record it because he, quote, didn't want to leave anything on the table in case things went south. So he just talks and talks. And occasionally, even when talking about doctors, he strikes a vein of comedy gold. I'm a doctor. I'm going to be hitting your knee with a hammer now. (laughs) That's the oddest one to me of all time. We haven't got past that. That's like a cartoon from the 1950s. Guy pulls out a hammer, hits your knee with it, and then you go, ah, my knee! Oh, my God, that hurts. And then the guy writes down, excellent. Very good. It's exactly how you should react when your knee is struck by a hammer. There's a charm to Norm MacDonald looking directly into the camera, his eyes twinkling with delight as he lands a punchline. He seems focused yet at ease, enjoying both the tightness of certain phrases and the looseness of what's essentially an on-camera rough draft. He's not even thrown by a barking dog or an unexpectedly ringing phone. You know, I mean, I, 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 I have opinions. I mean, I have opinions that everybody holds, you know? I like, uh, I don't know. Yellow is the best color, you know? But I don't know if you call that an opinion. You know, it's just a... It's just a Oh, hold on, it's my phone. Hello? I, I gotta phone you back on account I'm doing a special on the TV, comedy special. So I'll call you back, okay? Okay. Uh, sorry about that, guys. Anyways. Uh- Norm MacDonald came up with the title for Nothing Special himself in the hospital after filming it. It's the perfect double-meaning title, coming from a guy who, like George Carlin, always was in search of the perfect word. After McDonald's unedited one-take performance portion of Nothing Special is over, the rest of the show features six of his friends sitting around, deconstructing the special, and swapping stories about him. Norm's Saturday Night Live buddies Adam Sandler and David Spade and Molly Shannon are there. So are Dave Chappelle and David Letterman and Conan O'Brien, who appreciates not only what Norm MacDonald says, but how he says it. He had the, I, I, I think, best word choice of maybe any <laughs> yeah, comedian I've ever yeah, seen. Yeah, yeah. He intentionally mispronounces words. Yeah, 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 yeah When he knows, right. he knows how to say TV. Mm-hmm. He says it's the TV. Mm-hmm. He yeah. came on our show, I think it was his first appearance, and he was talking about a Doberman, and he said it's a Doberman. <laughs> and he knows. <laughs> But um, he's uh-huh. constantly screwing with you on every level. Right. But his word choice is, um, he was like Mark Twain. He, was just, he had this folksy, completely out of time 
Yeah. And I don't know if he was born 300 years yeah. too late or 300 years too early, but he's talking in a way, no one speaks like that. And mm -hmm. you really appreciate the way he says things. There's a great example of that in one bit, where Norm, instead of offering any wisdom, wonders why we've come to expect it from him or any comedians in the first place. He mentions one comic in particular, and, as Conan notes, mispronounces his name on purpose. But he's got an even funnier idea, a more philosophical one, just around the corner. And you're a comedian, they expect you to know things nowadays. You know what I mean? It didn't used to be like that. Like during the Vietnam War, they wouldn't go, wonder what Red Skeleton thinks on this. But nowadays, like I've heard, they go, the a comedian is the modern day philosopher, you know? Which, uh, first of all, it always makes me feel sad for the actual modern day philosophers <laughs> who exist, you know? After Norm's set, both Dave Chappelle and David Letterman try to define what makes Norm McDonald's nothing special so special. Uh, it was very endearing. It was amazing. This, uh, the form is different. It's not, strictly speaking, stand-up. It's something else. Yes, it is. So is the extended conversation afterward. Part wake, part party, and, like Norm MacDonald's portion, unusually intimate. Even with longtime TV talk hosts Letterman and O'Brien aboard, no one hosts this after-the-fact conversation. Everyone's just there, enjoying and appreciating and being present. This unique Netflix special allows us all to do the same. Stay safe, folks. I love you. I would drop the mic, but uh, I paid for it. David Biancooli is a professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey. He reviewed the new Netflix show, Norm MacDonald, Nothing Special. On tomorrow's show, we'll talk about the sex abuse scandal in the Southern Baptist Church with Robert Downen. He's one of the reporters who broke the story that about 300 church leaders abused or assaulted about 700 church members. That led the Southern Baptist Convention to commission an independent study. The results published last month suggest a cover-up. I hope you can join us. If you're interested in an inside look at Fresh Air from our producers and getting some staff recommendations, check out our newsletter, which you can subscribe to from our website. That's freshair.npr.org. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, and Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. Mm -hmm.